Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ambassador Kurt Tong. Kurt spent 30 years in the State Department as a career foreign service officer, with his last posting as the Consul General and Chief of Mission in Hong Kong and Macau. He is now a partner at the Asia Group, and we're delighted to welcome him to the show. Today, we're going to be discussing Kurt's thoughts on the appropriate U.S. response to the ongoing unrest in Hong Kong, including the recently enacted Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Kurt, welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. Thanks. Great to be here. So I want to start with this summer when you left your position as the Consul General in, in Hong Kong. I mm-hmm. think you left around or you stepped down at the end of June. Mm-hmm. We were now a couple of weeks into the protest movement. We'd already seen some large protests on the street. This was really beginning to kick off. But I wanted to get your thoughts. At that time, as you were leaving Hong Kong, wh- where did you think this was going? Did you have any sense that as of today is December 13th, this would still be at such a force and, and velocity? Well, at the time and today, certainly it's apparent to all careful observers that there's a lot of anxiety among the Hong Kong public generally, and that that anxiety and concern about the future is deep and wide. Um, And that was reflected in the demonstrations that I witnessed when I was still in town, The, the one on June 9th, which was very large, and then the one on June 16th, which was very, very large. And I left on early July, soon after the invasion of the Legislative Council. And that was the first hint, I think, that there might be a desire among the more radical protesters to really try and double down on the on the violent approach to getting attention. Because the previous, the first violent protest on June 12th was more a more spontaneous and organic thing. I mean, not to carry on on this, but on July 1st, the thing that was was really quite disconcerting was that the Democratic elected legislators were actively encouraging the protesters not to break into the Legislative mm. Council, but they went ahead and did it anyways. And I think that was the first real clear signal that there was something going on here that, that might create real disruption to the way the city was running. Are you surprised now, again, looking back from a vantage point of December at restraint by Beijing? Or do you think we're fundamentally, we've got the wrong calculation here when we ask, will or, or won't Beijing intervene more directly I with found PAP? All the, I actually found all the speculation that was happening in Washington about the People's Armed Police or the PLA that was taking place you know, in Washington in August and to be kind of entertaining because I didn't expect that to happen at all. Um, if you think about it from the mainland perspective, why would the Beijing leadership want to take direct 
ownership and control of a difficult issue when they don't really have any solutions other than than suppression of protests through physical force. And that there's no real clear indication that doing that would result in the end of those protests and, and could just end in a lot of tragedy. So I actually never really thought that, and I still don't think it's at all likely that Beijing would come in in a physical way mm. to try and suppress the, the protest movement. On the other hand, you know, I've been disappointed that Beijing hasn't used this as an opportunity to at least not apparent to to outside observers as an opportunity to reflect on what actions they might have taken that helped precipitate the current round of unhappiness. Hmm. You know, I want to ask you about a piece that you published recently in in Foreign Affairs entitled Do No Harm in Hong Kong. There's a sentence that stuck out to me. You said, at issue today in Hong Kong is not simply when and how the protests end, more consequentially is whether Hong Kong's uniquely autonomous status within China, as defined by the one country, two systems paradigm, can survive the current crisis. And you were writing this piece on December 6th. So I'd like to start with this. That's a pretty stark sentence. Can you unpack that in the sense of what's at stake here and why did you feel it's so dire that even the one country, two systems framework might break down? Well, to back up, Hong Kong is a unique setup you know, of a very westernized society operating with a, a separate body of law, different kind of cultural and business arrangements, different assumptions about how society should work within a country that's quite different from that, and that that difference is legally codified under Chinese law and is a solemn promise of the PRC to maintain it that way. It has been kept up for 22-odd years now, Keeping it up going forward requires constant reinforcement of confidence in the commitment to that fundamental mm. proposition. And so I think that everyone in everything that they do with respect to Hong Kong policy, whether it's the mainland China, the PRC authorities, people of Hong Kong or, or other countries like the United States, should think about how can they reinforce that confidence? Mm. Because if you don't have confidence in it, then it can start to fall apart. Mm. If it starts to fall apart, then then everyone loses this opportunity that's created by the Hong Kong construct. Mm. And so I find that that all of the focus on individual issues that are part of that picture, mm. and sometimes the exclusive focus in the United States on what's being driven by one part of the conversation rather than the overall conversation. I found you know my goal in writing this is to get people to focus on what does mm. the United States really want. And if so, how should we go about trying to achieve that? You know, most of the focus here has been on two things. One is the pro-democracy protesters and support for them. And then the other has been this idea of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Is autonomy different from the one country, two systems? Are you essentially saying we've even in supporting the protesters or supporting this idea of sufficient autonomy that that, that isn't the right focus for U.S. policy? Autonomy should be the focus of U.S. policy. Um, and that is the focus of U.S. policy. If you look at the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act, does Hong Kong have sufficient autonomy for the U.S. to continue to, to recognize it as having that under our laws as they apply to, to Hong Kong? As a matter of policy, we should be supporting the one country, two systems framework, which is Chinese policy. Right. So we, it's the U.S. supporting Chinese right. policy to the benefit of the U.S. and China and Hong Kong. Now, democracy freedom of expression, the rule of law, 
an independent judiciary, clean, good governance, responsive governance, those are all parts of the picture of Hong Kong that ref both reflect and reinforce Hong Kong's autonomy. But the fundamental issue at stake is, does Hong Kong have that autonomy mm. or not? I used to say to my colleagues, borrowing, you know, kind of in weird fashion from Bill Clinton, it's the autonomy, stupid. <laughs> and what is the issue at stake about, about Hong Kong's future, as long as it can last? But it's an interesting piece of the relationship between China and the rest of the world that it, it is by definition a win-win situation when it's working. Mm. So everyone should be working to reinforce confidence in that. Speaking of that, we've seen some pretty significant legislative action here in the United States. You know, through the summer, there was a, a big push for the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which passed with an overwhelming majority in, in the House and the Senate, and then was signed into law by President Trump on November 27th after much speculation if he would sign it, given that he's also trying to negotiate with the Chinese phase one trade deal. I think the focus of your piece in many ways was on this piece of, of legislation or a good portion of, mm -hmm. the, of the piece was focusing on that. And the bipartisan consensus seemed to show that this was just a no-brainer, you know, that this law was a great idea. You know, we need to do something. This is something. Let's do this. But in your piece, I was struck you mentioned that the certification requirement in the law, quote, raises a new risk for U.S. policy. And I wonder if you could spell out why you think the certification of Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy is a risk. You know, we already have a yearly reporting requirement on Hong Kong. So what, what's different here with this? Sure. So the existing framework or the framework under the 1992 Act, it's important to point out, allows but does not require the United States to treat Hong Kong separately mm -hmm. from the rest of China for purposes of U.S. law. And so the application of that has always been a reflection of reality. If Hong Kong had autonomy, the U.S. has treated it as having such in its actions, which it makes sense and it's reinforced in the law. My concern about the way the, the legislation was written is that with the certification requirement, it both puts the onus on the Secretary of State mm. to make a statement about China's doing something right, mm. which then makes it political. Mm. And it also creates a possibility for a binary decision saying Hong Kong either doesn't have or has autonomy, black and white. And it's actually quite gray. Right. Hong Kong's got a lot of autonomy, but it doesn't have complete autonomy. Right. And it never will. And it may lose some over time, hopefully not. But there has been a trend of, of diminished autonomy as, as it was identified in last year's Hong Kong Policy Act report. So I think just the way that it was constructed, the intention of Congress clearly as reflected by the overwhelming vote was that, yes, Hong Kong seems to be in trouble. We like Hong Kong. We wanted to, to continue to go forward, so we should do something. I would have changed the law a little bit in the way it was written, but it is what it is. And so I, I thought that it would be useful to, from my perspective, yeah. identify what that risk is in, in hopes that people are very thoughtful and the implementation of this law going forward. To the point you just made on requiring the Secretary of State to make a call on high degree of autonomy, looking at where U.S.-China relations are going over the next couple of years, they don't seem to be improving. Mm -hmm. And now that you're seeing Congress take a more active role in China policy, or at least a greater awareness of, do you think that certification will be able to be made outside of the larger political discussion on China? Well, it should be. 
and I hope it will be, and that's the way the law is written, is that it should be. It should be just based on the situation um, in Hong Kong. So I hope that that's what, what happens. But like I said, there's some risk that there's an overall flavor to mm -hmm. the relationship. And you know, there's some, as you mentioned with the trade thing, occasionally people will mix apples and oranges in the discussion about what the United States should be doing vis-a-vis -vis China. And particularly, given what I'm describing, the Hong Kong situation, it would be a mistake to link the Hong Kong issue to any other set of issues. Because there are real people an economy and our national interest, our economic interest, and the fate of seven million people are wrapped up in this. And to make that part of some other equation, I think, would be both unjust and probably uh, self-defeating. Let's imagine a couple of years from now, there's a, a decertification of high degree of autonomy. The U.S. government now or the State Department now believes that Beijing has encroached to such an extent that Hong Kong doesn't have the high degree of autonomy which Beijing has agreed to under the Basic Law 1984 Joint Declaration. And let's say we then do revoke Hong Kong's unique trading custom status. We start treating it like it's just another part of China. What would be the practical impact first for Hong Kong and why should the U.S. care about that? Well, let me add, are there intermediate measures that could be taken? And there are. So the United States can piecemeal change its policy on Hong Kong. And one thing that, that the Congress has also asked the administration to take a close look at is what about export controls? So does it make sense for Hong Kong to be treated differently for export controls purposes than the rest of China? There are, are good arguments on both sides of that, but that's one possibility that, that just that particular piece could change away from a binary mm -hmm. one or the other. So if there was a binary decision and the U.S. said, okay, Hong Kong no longer has autonomy. We will not recognize it as separate. It's just part of China. The impact would actually be big but not huge. There would be a whole bunch of confusion about whether, for example, could we continue to have a separate aviation agreement with, with Hong Kong, which we have. Could we continue to maintain our extradition agreement with Hong Kong, which we have and China doesn't. What would be the, the various arrangements? There'd be a lot of turbulence around that, most of which wouldn't impact real life all that much. The U.S. might or might not, depending on how we interpreted it, start to apply different tariff rates. And given that we currently have punitive high tariff rates on China, if we applied those to Hong Kong, Hong Kong would probably respond by applying those to the United States. And then we would give up our market in Hong Kong to Europe and Japan, which would cost us, mm. you know, as a nation in terms of our exports, about 30 a billion dollars or so. Hong Kong is actually, interestingly enough, our largest single bilateral trade surplus with any WTO member. Those would be the practical impacts, not devastating. And my guess is that other countries would not follow suit. They would make their own judgments on this, although there may be a trend that we would influence some of their other behavior. The big impact, in my opinion, would be on confidence about the future of mm -hmm. Hong Kong. And you might see people deferring or deciding not to invest in the mm. city economically or in terms of exchange programs or cultural activities or things like that and a sort of pervading sense that Hong Kong was fading away. And, you know, as I pointed out in the foreign affairs thing, there's a risk here that the United States actually accelerates the exact trend that we don't want to see, which is the diminishment of Hong Kong's mm. importance on the stage of East Asia, mm. where to date it's had a very positive beneficial impact on our relations with China, but also 
on the region writ large as, right. as a, a very free and open economy that operates well and it's efficient and we can you know, 1,400 U.S. companies have operations there. All of our banks are in there in a big way. It's the number three financial center in the world. This is a great thing for everybody. Mm. So I'm just concerned that in our concern about China's behavior, which is a problem and needs some response, that we would be responding in a way that is taking away the exact thing that we're trying to support. You know, so final couple questions and building off of that, what are better approaches that the U.S. can take, first of all, to ending the current unrest if we do have leverage. But then secondly, looking beyond this and imagine we have some new status quo that emerges, but yet obviously not a fundamental solution mm -hmm. of these tensions. Looking beyond this protest movement, what can the U.S. be doing actively to maintain, as you mentioned in your piece, support and maintain the one country, two systems framework? So I think you know it's important to have a lot of humility here because the U.S. reach has real limitations, certainly with respect to the, what this year's events and the demonstrations, but also the, the things that happened that, that helped precipitate the demonstrations. There are no silver bullets. There's no kind of snap your fingers and we change the world type policies. There are things that we could do which would be useful to reinforcing um, Hong Kong's autonomy. More engagement at the government level to reinforce Hong Kong as a separate actor on the global stage. So discussions on trade policy, more visits, cooperation on multilateral issues, either economic or financial, law enforcement activities, you know, environmental cooperation. As I say these, the, I'm sure the listeners are thinking, well, that's not going to change the world overnight, and they won't, but they would have a positive impact. I think more visits by U.S. government officials would be, would be useful. There haven't been that many. Um, in recent years. And there are some creative things that could be done. For example, Australia recently concluded a free trade agreement with Hong Kong. It took them a couple of years to negotiate. It wasn't a particularly difficult negotiation. There were some sticking issues on legal services and the like, but they were able to accomplish it. And the explicit rationale for Australia in concluding a free trade agreement with a market that's already wide open was to lock in and reinforce the status quo of a strong economic relationship and the rules that, that underpin that. And that's something that the, you know, that the United States could do and with similar benefit. Your final question, looking out you know, at your crystal ball three to five years, do we think that the divisions that have been exposed between Hong Kong society, but especially between the protesters and the police or the protesters and the government, can those rifts be healed or is there a new a permanent fault line running between especially younger uh, Hong Kongers and the political system? Not just not Beijing, but even just local governance. I don't own any crystal balls, Jude, but I'm hopeful given that Hong Kong is a place known, one of its characteristics is it has a, has a sense of civility, proper behavior towards one another, that this protest movement, that's why it's, one of the reasons why it's so shocking in Hong Kong is that it's just hasn't been that kind of place. And that's a reflection of the emotional anxiety and distrust and anger being felt by a segment of the population. I do think that, that it's possible with some appropriate policy responses, but also just kind of a sense of, of ownership on the part of everybody in the city to pull things together and work more cooperatively towards shared desires. 
it's not going to be easy. And it's really unfortunate now that the reputation of the police force, which was was very good, is now not good. And that will take some effort to reconstruct. And the government needs to do work to, re, to reestablish trust in its leadership. And the protesters need to do some work to reestablish a sense that they're being responsible members of society as mm. well. And so I think it's going to take a lot of work. But, you know, when you talk to Hong Kongers, they always say, well, don't don't count us out because we've been through some some stuff before. I mean, I saw the title of this podcast, Hong Kong on the Brink. There's actually a book that was with that title. It was written about 1967 <laughs> um, when there were actually widespread riots in, in Hong Kong. A lot of it was turned out to be associated with the Cultural Revolution activity across the border. But a lot of it was also self-generated anger and frustration at working conditions for people in sweatshops. And there were a lot of people killed, actually, in 1967 in Hong Kong, unlike the, the current mm. unrest. And the city bounced back from that. It was a different circumstance. It wasn't one country, two systems. It was a British colony. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't count the city out. And there's a lot of unknown variables, the future, the direction of Chinese governance, right. the direction of the Chinese economy, what the rest of the world does um, in East Asia. And so I think it's an, an open book still waiting to be written. Well, I hope you're right. And thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 